Reports National Review. I know you all are familiar and great fans of National Review, the publication, uh, but you might not be as familiar with National Review Institute. Uh, we develop programs and mostly what we try to do is support the top talent at National Review and bring them out to the readers, to all of you. So we've done a number of partnership events with Show Me and we just love coming uh, out to the rest of the country. Rick, as you can see um, from his background, is has escaped Manhattan uh, and is out uh, in the woods. Um, I actually am out of Manhattan as well um, in Westchester, but it's really such a joy for us to be able to, to uh, be with all of you um, here uh, in, in, in Missouri and in, I think we probably have some people from Kansas as well. Um, I want to thank uh, the Show Me Institute because we really so value the ability to be able to partner with you all. You are one of the real stars in the state policy network. And uh, I know that all of you who are fans of, of Brenda Talon and, and her work uh, know how well that Show Me has done. And so we just really appreciate this opportunity to be able to, to do this event. Um, virtually uh, as opposed to in person this one time. Um, and also for the Kansas City uh, Public Library, um, I actually traveled first uh, when I first came on a National Review Institute to Kansas City uh, Public Library with Rick. Uh, we did an event there um, several years ago and it was really uh, a wonderful opportunity to be able to meet so many fans uh, of National Review Magazine that had come out to see Rick. Um, and uh, again, being able to travel around the country to meet all of you is just it's a really, really great opportunity for us. And also the, the Kinder Institute for Constitutional Democracy. This is really great. Justin, we're, uh, we're so pleased that you're able to have this conversation with, with Rick here, here tonight. Um, again, I, I just really want to express our gratitude to our partners for being able to co-host this event with us, but also to all of you who are, are participating here. I know that being uh, in quarantine, <laughs> um, uh, whether it's self-quarantine or dictated by the government, is not what any of us would want to be doing right now, but I am very, very grateful for the technology that's been developed that we're allowed to be able to communicate and actually feel like we're seeing each other. So, so I, 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 in this time when, when there are so many uh, negative things that we see, I, I do think that there are, are wonderful positive and, and, um, and, and hopeful opportunities that, that we see on the horizon for all of us uh, right now to be together, but also to work together in the future. So um, enough from me, and I, I wanna turn it over uh, to the local folks. So um, Brenda, let me uh, turn it over to you. And again, thank you so much for your leadership uh, and uh, everything that you're doing in Missouri. Thank you, Lindsay, and thank you for the kind words. I wanna echo your gratitude to our partners, not only to National Review Institute, which you've been a, a wonderful partner with us, uh, through the through several years, and we're so grateful for the, the speakers you've brought to our cities, um, to the Kansas City Public Library and the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. Um, thank you all for coming together to bring this program to everyone. For those who don't know, I'd like to take just a brief moment to tell you a little bit about the Show Me Institute. It is an independent research and education organization. We focus on Missouri fiscal and economic policies from a free market lens. We don't believe that more government is a solution to every problem. Instead, we promote solutions 
really for the problems facing our citizens from the perspective of what can we do to unleash the creativity and, and the power of individuals. We want Missouri to be a place where entrepreneurs can pursue their dreams, where parents can direct the upbringing and education of their children, and where government acts in a way to enhance freedom and independence. You know, politicians come and go, but the power of ideas remain. And that's where institutes like the Show Me Institute and National Review step in. So um, I'd invite all of you to learn more about us at showmeinstitute.org, on Facebook at uh, Facebook backslash Show Me Institute, or on Twitter at Show Me. And with that, I want to turn it over to Chris because I'm really excited about this program and, and hearing from Rick. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Lindsay. My name is Christian Samino. I'm Director of Regional Development for National Review Institute. I am based in Milwaukee, and um, in normal times, travel to Kansas City and St. Louis frequently, so I look forward to seeing you all in person soon. I'm looking at our guest list tonight, and I recognize many of the names um, of, as folks who have attended our events live and in person. So you don't want to hear from me, so I don't have a speech. I am just here to do two things. One is introduce our guests tonight, and two is to let you know that we do want this to be interactive, so we was reserved about 20 minutes on the back half of the agenda tonight for questions that you may have of either Rick or Justin. Um, and you can do that by using the Q&A or chat feature at the bottom of your Zoom box. So feel free to ask them throughout the um, program. And at the end, we will try to get to as many of them as, as possible. So thank you again for everyone for joining us. And I'm excited to turn it over to Justin and Rick, who I would like to give a formal introduction to. Um, first, Justin is a, Justin Dyer is a professor of political science and director of the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. His research on teaching interests span the fields of political development, political philosophy, and constitutional law. The particular interest in the perennial philosophy of natural law. He's the author of several books and regularly teaches undergraduate courses on political theory in the U.S. Constitution and graduate seminars in public law. And tonight he will be in conversation with our featured guest, Richard Brookheiser, who's written a fantastic book, Give Me Liberty, which I'm happy to say I've read. And if I can advocate that this should probably be essential reading in the United States for our high schools and colleges, I will put in that plug. I've definitely had my um, school-age daughter read a few of the chapters and she um, was very interested. Richard Brookheiser is a senior editor of National Review, a senior fellow at National Review Institute, a columnist for American history, and the author of over a dozen books, including Founding Father, Rediscovering George Washington, Founder's Son, A Life of Abraham Lincoln, and Alexander Hamilton, American. He received an honorary doctorate from Washington College in 2005 and a National Humanities Medal in 2008. He and his wife live in New York City. Um, Justin, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Actually, Rick, if you'd like to start talking about the, the book and then um, Justin, you can uh, ask questions of Rick in time. John? Yep, sounds good. Rick, you're on. Okay, can you hear me all right? Can you yep. hear and see me? Okay. Uh, I am up in Ulster County. My wife and I do live in New York City, but uh, we have a, a second home uh, an, an hour or two away, and uh, the tree toads have started uh, 
it's that time of evening, so uh, I will try and talk over them. Uh, I'm very pleased to be uh, doing this with the Show Me Institute. Uh, Lindsay mentioned this event in Kansas City that we did uh, when she first came on to National Review Institute. I remember that. It was a great event, big crowd, interested crowd. I really enjoyed it. Uh, also, one of my best friends happens to be from Missouri. That's Terry Teachout. He's from the Boot Heel. You probably read him in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so my book, Give Me Liberty, uh, A History of America's Exceptional Idea. I wrote this book because I thought we've, we've had an international conversation about nationalism. It's going on in a, in a lot of countries simultaneously. And it's taking various forms. Uh, some of them are encouraging and ought to be encouraged. Others are rather sinister, and some are just confused. And some of those confusing ones are in this country, I think. So I wanted to write a book that explained what was essential about American nationalism, what was defining about it. And I see that as the quest for liberty. This is something that Americans have been doing uh, since before we were a country. We've been doing it for 400 years. We've been thinking about it, talking about it, working for it, sometimes fighting for it. Now, that doesn't mean there haven't been lapses, sometimes terrible lapses and exceptions, but we have recognized those and we have worked to rectify them. So I think it is a true and fair to say that liberty is essential to the American identity. And the book consists of 13 chapters. Each one is based on a document which was produced at a particular moment in our history. Uh, some of these documents are public statements. Uh, some of them come from the leaders of American society. Others were uh, statements from the bottom up, protests by ordinary people. Some of them are very famous. Uh, you've all read the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address many times. Some of them are obscure. Uh, some of them are quite long. Uh, one is the record of a trial, a trial for seditious libel that's 13,000 words long. Others are very short. Uh, the Gettysburg Address took two or three minutes to deliver. Uh, the poem, The New Colossus, is a sonnet. It's 14 lines. But together, I think they, they present a, a case for the centrality of liberty in our history and in our national life. And uh, we, can, we, can talk about, um, we can talk about any one of these this evening. Let me quickly go over what the 13 are. Three of them are from our colonial history uh, before there was the United States. There is the minutes of the first General Assembly of the Jamestown Colony in 1619. That's number one. Uh, number two is the Flushing Remonstrance, 1657. Number three is the trial of John Peter Zanger for seditious libel in 1735. Uh, then we get some documents from the late 18th century, uh, the time of the American founding, the Declaration of Independence, 1776, uh, the minutes of the first meeting of the New York Manumission Society, 1785, and the Constitution of the United States, 1787. Then the next group takes us into the 19th century. 
We have the Monroe Doctrine in 1823. We have the Declaration of Sentiments of the Seneca Falls Convention on Women's Rights in 1848. And we have the Gettysburg Address in 1863. Then after the Civil War, we have a few more 19th century documents. We have uh, the poem, The New Colossus, which was written in 1883, uh, added to the base of the Statue of Liberty later. The statue itself went up in 1886. Then there's William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech in 1896. And then finally, I've got two from the last century, the 20th century, FDR's Arsenal of Democracy fireside chat from 1940, and Ronald Reagan's Tear Down This Wall speech in 1987. So those are the 13 I picked. Uh, I think you could have another 13. You could have several other 13s. Uh, probably anyone's list would have, for instance, the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address. Uh, there are other things that could easily be put on the list, but uh, these were the ones that struck me. These were the ones I was particularly interested. I'll admit there's a bias towards New York, just because I've lived in New York State all my life, so a lot of these have to do with New York City or New York State. I confess, I'll admit to that. But uh, that's my collection. And uh, Justin, maybe I'll just say a few words about the very first one, uh, 1619, the General Assembly, first General Assembly of the Jamestown Colony. And the, the reason maybe for beginning with that is we've heard a lot about the 1619 Project, uh, which is the New York Times's um, bid to, as they say, recenter the teaching of American history. And they focus on the arrival uh, uh, in 1619 of the White Lion, a privateer which sold 20 and odd Negroes to the Jamestown colony. So this is the beginning of a black chattel slavery uh, in British North America and ultimately the United States. And I do address that uh, in Give Me Liberty. Uh, several of the uh, documents uh, relate to our experience with slavery. But something else happened in 1619. It happened before the White Lion docked in Jamestown. And I think its effects are even more important, even more far lasting and to the good rather than to the bad. And that was the first meeting of the General Assembly at Jamestown. Now in 1619, Jamestown, the Jamestown colony was already a dozen years old. It had been founded in 1607 and it had a very rocky time. Uh, the colonists were not aware that they were landing in Virginia in the midst of a drought that had been going on for several years and that would continue for several, several years more. So it was very difficult for them to grow food. When they tried to trade for food with the local Indians who were their neighbors, they didn't have extra supplies either. Uh, there was one period early in the colony's history, it was called the starving time, when they were reduced to uh, it, it was just horrible. They were chewing on their leather belts. They were eating vermin. They were reputed to have cannibalized their own corpses. It was just an awful thing. And the survivors were in the process of leaving when a relief fleet came from England with some more people and some more supplies. So the colony staggered on. But then a question was, you know, how do we run this? How do we try to make this work? And they tried various solutions. One was martial law okay, we were all starving. So that means everybody's going to be forced to work. You're going to be forced to go out in the fields and grow food. 
Uh, this will be run like a military colony, like a penal colony. Anyone who disobeys orders uh, will be broken on the wheel. And that means basically beaten to death. You were attached to a wheel that spun around and, and you were like clubbed until you expired. Well, that can only go on so long, right? I mean, if, if people in England learn that this is what's going on in Jamestown, who in the world would ever come there? So they, they, they rethought. And then in 1618, they sent out a new governor, a man named George Yardley, uh, and uh, also another man, John uh, Pory, uh, who would uh, be one of Yardley's assistants. And Yardley had a mandate uh, from the owners of the colony. The colony was, was owned by a company in London, which expected to make a profit from it. The owners of the company gave Governor Yardley a new mandate for running it. And part of this was to summon a general assembly. And the general assembly would consist of Yardley himself. It would consist of his council of advisors who had all been picked in London as had Yardley by the, by the company which owned the colony. But there were also to be 22 Burgesses. And these were men who were elected from the 11 boroughs which made up the colony. Boroughs just being an English uh, term like county, synonym of county. So each uh, section of the Jamestown colony got to elect two men and they were part of the General Assembly. Now, what, what's in uh, selection process and also in the process of how the General Assembly voted, it was one man, one vote. Uh, the, the Burgesses were elected by one man, one vote, each from their boroughs. And then when the General Assembly got together, everybody in it had one vote. Now, the governor had a veto, so he had a super vote. But apart from that, every, everybody there has one vote. So this is a, a, an establishment of a governing body that is going to be picked by a franchise and that is going to make decisions according to a franchise. And what the General Assembly did over its first meeting in the summer of 1619 was local government. It's the kind of thing we're all familiar with. Uh, they made a request to London that they wanted a college in the colony. Uh, they passed laws having to do with economics. How do we trade with the Indians? Uh, what sort of trade do we encourage? What sort of trade do we forbid? Uh, they forbade people from, from selling guns to the Indians. The penalty for that was death. Uh, they, they passed regulations about tobacco, which was a crop they were growing. Um, what would be the price of tobacco? The company would buy it from the growers. How much would they pay for it? When did you have to deliver it? Where did you have to bring it? They passed morals regulations. Um, no prostitution. They didn't want that. Uh, no blasphemy. They didn't want that. Everybody had to attend church, uh, rules of that kind. So uh, these rules are the kind of thing we call the police power. Uh, it doesn't have to do with the cops. It just means the power of the polity, how it's going to run itself. And Jamestown is doing it itself. Now, initially, all the decisions of the General Assembly were subject to uh, approval by London. They could... Uh, vote for uh, policies that they wanted, but they wouldn't be instituted until they crossed the Atlantic Ocean and London said yes, and then sent a ship back, and, and then they could go ahead and do it or not. 
But as time passed, and as English history back home became rather interesting, there was a civil war in the middle of the 17th century. And also Jamestown is pretty remote. Uh, it, it wasn't profitable. Um, tobacco did catch on as a crop, but, th but that was a gradual process. And there was just inattention. You know, people in, in London uh, were not paying close attention to what was going on across the Atlantic Ocean. And in that vacuum, the General Assembly grabbed for power for itself. So over time, this became truly a part of the government of what became Virginia, and it was the self-governing element of the Virginia colony. And this last uh, right up to the American Revolution and beyond, because the House of Delegates in Virginia now is the successor to the colonial House of Burgesses. And it begins in 1619. It's the first example in British North America. Others would follow very soon. Bermuda would have one in 1620. Uh, the, the, the pilgrims coming to Massachusetts uh, Bay uh, would have their own Mayflower Compact in 1620. But the beginning of it, the beginning of self-rule, which I think is one of the essential liberties in American history, is with the General Assembly at Jamestown. So I would say this is my 1619 project. Now, when I wrote Give Me Liberty, I had no idea what the Times was doing. Uh, I only learned that, you know, fortuitously. But we were both obviously looking at 1619 as a date to celebrate. And, uh, and this is what I think is even than the arrival of the White Lion and its, its terrible, tragic human cargo. So that's my... Um, that's my opening spiel, uh, Justin. That's great. You opened with 1619, and I was going to ask you, and then you answered my question whether you knew about the New York Times project or not when you were doing this. Your book came out in the fall. When did the 1619 project for the New York Times hit? Do you remember? Is this about the same time that your book is coming about out? About the same time. It was, yeah. it was really about the same time. And my book comes out in 1619. I was originally planning to finish it so it would come out in 1620. But I remember at the end of 16, of nine, 28, let's get our sentence right here. My editor at Basic Books, Laura Heimert, she said, well, you know, Rick, we really don't want to bring a book uh, out in election year. It's, it's just going to sink like a stone. It's going to be crazy. So uh, you, you really have to deliver your manuscript. I think she said March. This is in December. And I was halfway through. <laughs> So it's like, you know, step on the gas pedal here. Right. And, and, and so I did. And I, I was two weeks late, but, but we got it out in 1619. Little knowing that not only would, six, would, would 2020 be an election year, but it would be COVID year. So, I mean, I just feel so sorry for all the writers who are, who are bringing out books now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a tough time. So thinking about this 1619 moment, in some ways it creates the parallel tracks that you see through American history with respect to self-government on the one hand, the creation of a self-governing legislative body and enslaved labor on the other that we have through our history. And so I wanted to invite you, I know a lot of people looking at the table of contents and especially after the New York Times project would see 1619, they would call to mind exactly how you opened your presentation. And you ask this question in the introduction, and then you answered in the introduction, but I wanted to invite you to do it again. And the question you ask is, where are the dark chapters documenting oppression, brutality, injustice, 
in American history. And I was thinking about it as liberty as the essence of our nationalism, how that changes the way we see those episodes of brutality and injustice in American history. And in doing that, I want to ask you just to to think about and then comment on this letter that Patrick Henry wrote. And I was thinking about this because of the title of the book, Give Me Liberty, which comes obviously from Patrick Henry, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. And he has this famous letter that I'm sure you're familiar with, where he receives a book uh, against the slave trade, and he's writing back to the person who had given that to him. And he comments and he says this, he says, is it not amazing that at a time when the rights of humanity are defined and understood with precision in a country above all others fond of liberty, that in such an age, in such a country, we find men professing a religion, the most humane, mild, meek, gentle, and generous, adopting a principle as repugnant to humanity as it is inconsistent with the Bible and destructive to liberty. And then he goes on and confesses that he wouldn't justify his own conduct. And, and it's a, a letter that gets picked up from time to time. What do we take away from an episode like that from a man like Patrick Henry and what it tells us about America and American history and how we interpret these different events going on at the same time? Well, um, I mean, the first thing I guess to start with is, is the founding generation themselves. Uh, many of them, of course, were slave owners. Some of them had been. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, by the time of 1776, he hasn't been a slave owner for years and years, but, but he was when he was a younger man. Uh, but uh, even, even the slave owners, most of them felt guilty about it or felt bad about it, felt that there was a contradiction between the way they lived and the new republic that they were founding. And indeed, very soon, about half of the former colonies now become states, either got rid of slavery or began the process of getting rid of it. Uh, in 1776, all 13 states have slavery, all of them from New Hampshire down to Georgia. But by the end of the 18th century, uh, Pennsylvania has freed its slaves, Massachusetts has freed its slaves, uh, some states have begun a process whereby at a time certain their slaves will all be liberated. Uh, that's the fifth chapter of Give Me Liberty, which is the constitution of the New York Manumission Society. And that, that was a group founded in 1785. And the reason I picked that to, to address the early anti-slavery story is one, to show that slavery was not just a Southern thing. I mean, New York, had a lot of slaves. New York City had more slaves than any other city in the United States except Charleston, South Carolina at the end of the 18th century. So this was not just a Moonlight and Magnolia's Southern thing. And yet New York, prominent New Yorkers made a decision shortly after the revolution that we can't continue living with this. Uh, this, is, this is a bad thing and we should take steps uh, to ameliorate and to end it. Uh, one of the things that, that got them going was um, what were called blackbirders. These were uh, people who would come looking for escaped slaves uh, to return them for a fee to their masters, you know, where, wherever they'd run away from. But very often they apprehended free black people, you know, and, and shipped them 
into slavery. There, there was a movie, uh, 12 Years a Slave, recently, about a historical case of a man later in the 19th century to whom this happened. But in New York in 1785, there was a notorious case where some uh, free black men were about to be lured onto a ship, and it was either going to be taken to Charleston or to uh, the Caribbean, and it was stopped. And this was a, a local scandal. So some of the elite of New York City and state said, well, we, we've got to stop this kind of thing. They were also joined by Quakers. So this is an interesting anomalous alliance. You have uh, uh, some of the most powerful famous men in the state, uh, the governor of the state, George Clinton, John Jay, who would, who would serve as governor later himself, Alexander Hamilton, a rising star. And then you have these Quakers who are um, by definition, by self-definition, apolitical. I mean, they don't run for office. They don't hold office. Often they don't even vote because they think it's just corrupt. You know, it's, it's part of the larger society, which is immoral. Uh, they will agitate, though, for specific improvements that they think ought to be done. So you have this kind of odd couple alliance between New York City Quakers and, and the New York City elite. And they found the Manumission Society. And one of its goals is to stop this practice of seizing uh, uh, free black people and carrying them off. Another goal is to educate free black people so they will be less liable to be carried off. Uh, they will understand. Uh, Rick, you. Be such easy Other goal was, was to lobby uh, for for the ending of slavery in the state, which does ultimately happen in 1827. So you can look at that and say, well, that's 42 years. You know, that's kind of a long time. I mean, there were slaves in 1785 who were dead by the time uh, by, by the time uh, the evil was ended. But you can also look at it and say, yeah, they got rid of it, though. Uh, would that there had been such a thing in Virginia? Uh, for instance. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's a mixed bag and it's, uh, but it's important to show uh, the impulse there and the desire to, um, uh, to have this fixed in the wake of the revolution by people yeah. who realize the contradiction uh, between the existing way of life and, and the, the principles that were already animating Americans. Yeah, there's a tension there. And I'm reminded of Frederick Douglass's line that the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. And his change just in terms of how he interpreted the different events and the ideas that are going into these different things. Let me fast forward. We started with 1619. I want to fast forward to the end of the book, which is Reagan's speech in 1987. And, and a simple question about that, but why end in 1987? We have from 1987 to the present, and it, there's a void there. Is there something that you're implying by not including a document past 1987? Well, you know, part of it, part of it is, is a combination of idealism and cunning, okay? I, I want this book to be read by everybody. You know, I don't want this to be just read by readers of National Review. I, I think the, the things that I'm writing about are things that all Americans can take pride in, uh, what, whatever party they belong to, whoever they vote for. I mean, obviously, they're, you know, they're freaks and outliers on, on both sides of the aisle, frankly, but, but all of us should and can take pride in these documents. So I didn't want to do anything that would awake 
uh, current partisan passions. Now, that's not to say that how we fight the Cold War wasn't a very par partisan issue at the time it was going on. It certainly was. And Reagan's conduct was, was you know, it was yep. uh, an, uh, an object of partisan contention. Since we won the Cold War and the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, I think the consensus is, well, yes, we were, we were on the right side. And you've got a true mix of documents. You've got Reagan, you've got FDR, you've got Williams, Jennings, Bryan, you've got the Seneca Falls Declaration. So you could look at all these different documents and see them representing different points of view, which maybe comes to a different question, and that's about liberty and whether the same concept of liberty is being threaded throughout each one of these documents or whether we see something different, changes, different perspectives, different views of what liberty is throughout our history. Well, you, you see, I think the, the three colonial documents are, each one of them is about a specific kind of liberty. The, the General Assembly of Jamestown was about self-rule, you know, the right of people to rule themselves. Uh, the Flushing Remonstrance, uh, which is from the Dutch experience in early America, that, that is about religious liberty. These were people in the, in the colony of New Netherland who, who, who refused to obey an order from Peter Stuyvesant, the director general, to keep Quakers out. And they said, well, no, we will welcome them because, because the Bible teaches us to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. And it's a religious argument for religious liberty. Uh, the trial of John Peter Zanger in 1735 was all about freedom of the press, freedom, freedom of expression. He was being tried for seditious libel, which was the crime of bringing the government into disrepute. Uh, so those are specific liberties. But as we, you know, once you hit the Declaration, people start tying all this together. I mean, I'm not saying the Declaration of Independence was the first time this happened, but people start seeing liberty as a thing, as a whole. Uh, I, I write in that chapter that maybe one of the most amazing words in the whole Declaration of Independence is among. You know, among these are mm -hmm. life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, it's not like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness aren't sweeping enough. Jefferson says, among these. In other words, there are other things too. You yeah. know, these are just the three most important ones. I'll lay those on you. But it's just among these. So, so he's, seeing, he's seeing liberty as, as a whole and as a thing. And then, you know, as time goes on, people notice who has been excluded from this. I mean, we were, we were talking about uh, slavery and, and the, the experience of enslaved black people in this country, enslaved and discriminated against. The Seneca Falls Declaration is, well, uh, among other things, why can't women vote? You know, men do. Why can't we? And then there, there's, uh, there was a very interesting story about that. Not, not all the early feminists at that meeting were concerned with the right to vote. It was really the pressure of, of a few of them, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, to put that in there. And, and again, this, was, this is, um, reflects the Quaker presence. A lot of these early women um, uh, feminists were Quakers, and therefore they thought, ah, oh, the hell with it. Politics is a swamp. It'll never be drained. You know, we don't run for, we don't hold office. We don't vote. So why should we put this in here? Uh, but Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the daughter of a former congressman, and her husband was a political orator and um, agitator. So she, she grew up uh, and lived around politics and she knew it was important. And that, you know, if you don't have a say 
in, in the laws that run your life, you can't count on other people to look after your own interests as well as you will. So she insisted on putting that in there. Now, the one thing where I've been a, a, little, a little criticized uh, it was in a very nice review in the Claremont Review of Books. Um, they, they liked the book. I was very pleased, uh, pleased by the review. But they did say, well, what the hell is the Cross of Gold speech doing in here? You know, are, Brookheiser, are you a bimetallist? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't believe that inflationary monetary policy is, is the solution to all our ills. And that's what bimetallism was. We were on a gold standard. Uh, if we went to a gold and silver standard, that at that moment, that would have been inflationary and people who were in debt, a lot of them being farmers at the time, would have gotten relief from that, or so, so they passionately believed. And, and this was the, the start of William Jennings Bryan's, you know, long uh, quest for the White House. He first runs for president in 1896 and he runs twice more in, 2000, in 1900 and, and 1908. Uh, but the reason I included that speech was because of one sentence in it. One sentence, and not the most famous one. Not, not you shall not press down on mankind this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify him on a cross of gold. That's the end of the speech. That, that made the convention go bananas in Chicago in 1896. But Brian himself said he thought the best paragraph in it was one he'd written the night before. And... This was a, a paragraph where he's comparing certain, he's making pairs between kinds of Americans in the economic system. And he's, he's saying, he leads off by saying, you have narrowed the definition of a businessman too much. The man who works for wages is as much a businessman as the man who pays his wages. And then he goes through a series of comparisons that, you know, someone who is a farmer uh, is as important as someone who bets on the price of grain at the grain pit in Chicago. Someone is, who is a miner is as much a businessman as someone who's, you know, betting on the price of gold. Uh, someone who's a country lawyer uh, is as much a, a businessman as a corporation lawyer in a big city. And there's an element of demagogy there. He's, he's sort of saying, oh, the country is good and small towns are good and big cities are bad and all that kind of stuff. But I thought that that first sentence, the man who works for wages is as much a businessman as the man who pays his wages. I thought Brian really hit something there. He really did. And uh, I kind of see the importance of it now uh, as we worship the tech gods, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Bezos, I saw, I saw that uh, Bezos is going to be a trillionaire. We are first, the world's first trillionaire. Well, that's very impressive. It also probably means the dollar isn't worth so much. But okay, there, there's him, and then there's uh, uh, Zuckerberg and and, uh, and and Gates, you know, and all. And we we kind of almost dream about these people, and and you know, either look up to them or or we you know we do the reverse, which is just an, a different form of worship. I mean, hatred can be like worship standing on its head. But so, so I, you know, it's important, I think, now to step back and say, well, yeah, they're not the only players in, in, in this economic game. Uh, and I think that may be one of the consequences of this uh, lockdown we're going through. Yeah. I mean, people yeah. are realizing that, 
you know, the guy who comes from Amazon with your whatever, or the, the, the checkout uh, woman or man at the store that you're allowed to go to uh, is a very important worker. Yep. Let me ask one final question, Rick, and then Chris, if you want to jump in. So that's what I was trying to say in that chapter. Yeah. Chris, if you want to jump in with uh, moderating questions from the audience, but one final question uh, as we're thinking about this, if I channeled my historian friends, they would ask, I think, both about American exceptionalism and be skeptical of the idea that America is exceptional, point to the deep British roots of colonial assemblies and that our revolution is one in an age of revolutions, that the things that happened during the New Deal are happening around the world and ours is a more moderate form of that, that American history is in some sense embedded in this global history. And that might be one uh, question to tackle. And then the second, I think, from the same angle, what would happen if we looked at these documents from the perspective of an outsider, somebody looking in? If you're in Latin America reading the Monroe Doctrine, does it still look like a document of liberty? Or if you're a Soviet looking at the speech in 1940 from FDR, does that look like a liberty document to you? What does it look like from the outside? And does it mean that international liberty is a zero-sum game? Or is there a way for this to be done internationally, collectively, and together? Well, I do think that the areas in which we are concerned with liberty have grown over the centuries. And I'm not saying we are at a point, or even that we should be at a point, where we are always concerned and, and practically concerned with everybody's liberty everywhere. Because we have to be prudent, you know, we have limited resources, we have to make choices. So the three foreign policy documents I have, Monroe Doctrine, Arsenal of Democracy, uh, Fireside Chat, and uh, Tear Down This Wall speech, uh, the first one says to Europe, you're not going to recolonize the Western Hemisphere. And you also won't set up new kings here. It was both geopolitical and, and it was political. No new kings here. And you know this happened during the Civil War, by the way. When we were distracted by the Civil War, Napoleon III in France tried to do exactly that. He got a Habsburg prince whom he made the uh, Emperor of Mexico. And then as soon as the Civil War was over, and, the, and then we said, well, no, you don't. And the French took their troops out, and, and the, poor, the poor man, the poor Habsburg, who wasn't such a bad guy, he was, he was shot. But uh, so, so there was a desire on the part of at least some Europeans to do that. And we were saying, no, we will take that as a hostile act. The arsenal of democracy is saying, we cannot let the Nazis beat Britain. No, it wasn't saying, you know, we are, we are going to the arsenal of democracy in China and, and India and, and the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, God knows where, but we cannot let the Nazis beat Britain. And we, we will see that it doesn't happen. We will be their arsenal. And then uh, the, the tear down this wall speech is uh, no more communists in Berlin. You know, Gorbachev, if you're serious about perestroika and changing things, you can come here and tear down this wall. Okay, so these were, I think, measured extensions of, uh, of the idea from our point of view. Now you're asking me, well, what, you know, what, what would a stranger think of this? Uh, well, yes, we, our revolution was in an era of revolutions, but ours was the first. 
Yeah, ours was the first. Um, France was the next, Haiti was the next, and then, you know, in the 19th century, it's like Katie bar the door and on into the 20th. And uh, I will say, a lot of those revolutions were very problematic. Uh, some of them ended well, many did not. And I'm not saying that to sneer at those countries, you know, because some places that, you know, for God's sake, what awful experiences they have had and were trying to deal with and, and you know, make better. And they, they didn't, perhaps because they couldn't. But ours was the first. And, and, and so we have, um, I suppose we can take some credit or at least responsibility for inaugurating this era of revolutions. It was both a, a, a revolution for political ideals and it was also an anti-imperialist revolution. We, we were throwing off uh, the control of a European power. So uh, I guess that's how I would answer those questions. Oh, the other answer. thing, oh, the other thing, one other thing about strangers looking in. The whole chapter on um, the New Colossus and the Statue of Liberty, you know, Emma Lazarus's poem, which is on the basis of the Statue of Liberty, there's a lot about France in there because the Statue of Liberty was a gift to us mm -hmm. from France. And it was from certain kinds of Frenchmen. You know, the French political spectrum is a very, very wide one. And they, they've gone from guillotiners to, you know, fascism in World War II. But there have always been classical liberal Frenchmen. Uh, Tocqueville was one. Uh, Lafayette uh, was one. And then the man who conceived the idea for the Statue of Liberty, a man named Laboulet, uh, he was another one. Uh, he was uh, he was unhappy with uh, the the dictatorship of Napoleon III. He hoped you know it would end that there'd be something better for France, and he sort of um, lived through that period by observing American affairs, hoping that the Union would win the Civil War, glad that the slaves were freed, and then he came up with the idea of why don't we give the United States uh, some colossal monument. Uh, to the ending of slavery and also to celebrate the centennial of their revolution, which we were so helpful in. So, uh, so there's an there's an example in the book where I'm where I'm you know really very aware of a of another country and how it's interwoven with our own history and how they react to it and how we um, inspire them. Well, thanks. It's a fascinating, thought-provoking book. It reminds me of how much I don't know and still need to learn and read and think about. Chris, do you have some questions from the audience to moderate? Sure, I do. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Rick. There's so much content in these 13 chapters. Like you said, Justin, you kind of can peel back the layers of the onion and probably delve into each one of them more. So I actually will let you talk uh, for a few more minutes, but I do want to sprinkle in a couple of questions we have from the audience. Uh, our good friend Kurt Witzel in St. Louis asks, when the British allowed the Jamestown Burgesses to do a one-man-one-vote concept, did they not understand that these colonists came to the New World to gain liberty from the crown, and that by giving them a say in governmental structure, they were greasing the skids, so to speak, and inviting revolution, which is what they got? Your response, both of you. No, I don't think they understood it at all. Um, you know, this, this was an investment company in London, they were hoping to make money from this uh, transatlantic venture. Uh, they thought this would be an incentive for people to go there. 
you know, if, if the colony is well run, and that includes the, the, the people who are there having some say in it, we'll get more people going over there. You know, and they'll farm more and they'll work harder and they'll grow more tobacco and we'll make a profit off this thing. So I think that was, um, you know, that was their motive. And, and they're also in England at this time, there are stirrings against, uh, beginning to be stirrings against the, the, the House of Stuart, which would ultimately end in the English Civil War. So, you know, there are bubblings in, in English politics, which are, you know, sort of reflected transatlantically. I don't know that I have much to add other than they're, they're British subjects and they, they behaved as British subjects. And this is one of the things that they would do is create legislative and representative assemblies and take part in self-government. And so I don't think anybody was looking ahead at, at revolution down the road or foreseeing what, what would come next. Very good. Everyone, um, please, if you want to ask any more questions, use the Q&A or chat functions at the bottom of the Zoom box and we will try to get to them. Rick, you said in another interview uh, that if you had to choose one of these 13 um, statements, the Flushing Remonstrance may be your favorite. Can you comment on that and tell us a little bit more about the Remonstrance? Well, the Flushing, uh, the flushing Remonstrance uh, is, is from the uh, Dutch colonial experience. Uh, the Dutch uh, founded uh, what they called New Amsterdam in 1624. And um, that was a colony to make money off the fur trade. Uh, but it was, also, it was also a port. It was a port city with a, with a polyglot population. And the last governor was a man named Peter Stuyvesant. And uh, I feel close to him because when I'm in New York City and I look out my apartment window, I look at Stuyvesant Park, which is actually a remnant of the farm he once had. And there's a statue of him in Stuyvesant Park. It's, it's, it's a quite a good public statue. He's standing there with, he has one leg. He got part of his leg shot off in a Dutch colonial war. And he's leaning on his staff and he's, and he's looking off. And uh, he looks very smart. He looks very capable. And he looks like you do not want to cross this guy. <laughs> you just don't want to do it. He kind of reminds me of Giuliani. You know, uh, when Giuliani was mayor, I mean, a very effective person and more than a little crazy, okay? And uh, Stuyvesant's particular craziness was religious bigotry. Uh, he was the son of a Dutch reform minister. As far as he was concerned, Calvinism was the only way to go. Uh, when he took the job, he started off, he was leaning on the Jews and the Lutherans who lived in New Amsterdam. And then he got, he got his chain yanked by his bosses back in Holland. This was another uh, investment company colony. It was the Dutch West India Company that ran the whole thing, hoping to make a profit off it. And they told him, look, we, we, we've got Jewish and Lutheran investors and directors here back in Amsterdam. So, you know, cut this out. So he did. He was a good company man. He followed orders. But then Quakers appeared in his domain. And there were no investors or directors who were Quakers back in Amsterdam. This was a new religion then. This was very countercultural. You know, Quakers would not doff their hats. Um, they let women uh, preach as well as men. They, they, were, they were out there. They were very peculiar. So he does not want them in his colony at all. And the Flushing Remonstrance, 1657, he gets a letter 
uh, from 30-some men in the village of Flushing, which, which is still there. It's now part of uh, Queens. It's where Donald Trump grew up, but it was a little, a little village by, by itself. And they wrote him and they said, they addressed uh, the, the governor general, they said, we cannot obey this, this edict of yours that no one may harbor a Quaker in his house uh, because uh, we would do unto others as we would have others do unto us. Our savior saith, this is the law and the prophets. And the reason I love, the two reasons I love this, one is this is a religious argument for re religious liberty. And I think when, when we think of it, we tend to think of religious liberty as a philosopher's gift to us. You know, it's the inspiration of John Locke uh, and, and people who were philosophers or like philosophers themselves, like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, um, and that that's the source of our religious liberty. And certainly that's very important. But this was just a bunch of villagers saying, the golden rule means that we are going to welcome these other people if they come to our houses. And I was very impressed by that. The second thing that impressed me is six of the guys who signed this couldn't write their names. They made marks. You know, they, they, they were not literate enough to be able to write their names, but they laid down a marker. And I just found that so moving that they, you know, here, here are a lot of these people signing and then these six men put their marks on. So uh, those are my favorite things about the Flushing Remonstrance. Well, I'm going to say that was the fastest hour, I think, in the history of television here. Um, so I would like to just make a quick comment or two, and then I'm going to turn it back to you all for our final comment. I want anyone to know that's uh, participating here tonight that there is a great 13-episode podcast that Rick did with Luke Thompson on each of these chapters. And you can find that at nationalreview.com under the uh, podcast section. So if you're interested in um, uh, reading the book and then having it supplanted by Rick's commentary, I would, I would strongly encourage you to check out that podcast. Um, thank you again to Show Me Institute and to Justin and Rick for taking the time and for all of you for joining us. Gentlemen, would you like to make a final comment before we sign off here? I'd say the book, it's an excellent book. It's worth taking a look at. Uh, when we were talking, one of the questions I asked is why we stopped in 1987. And part of the answer was, well, we wanted a collection of documents that people could be unified around. And for our moment right now, I think in American politics, that's so important to do. And for us to be able to travel outside of our own current moment and partisan squabbles and, and contemporary parochial debates and think in the long term about American liberty is really a service. And so, Rick, thanks for writing this book and talking with us about it today. Okay, well, well thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, I hope everybody stays safe, stays healthy. I think the last thing I would say is that um, we, we've had 400, I think, pretty devoted years for the most part to liberty, but it's not a perpetual motion machine. You know, it, do, it doesn't mean we'll have 400 more or 40 or four more. Uh, we've got to, it, it's something we have to, to uphold, to understand and to desire and to uphold in every generation. And I hope this book would encourage that. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Justin. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Talk to you later. Right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay,